0: Hello, hello, and thank you for tuning in, or listening, I should say. Queuing up the latest edition of Too Long, Don't Listen. My name's Sean Peterbudge, and I'm here today to talk about The King's Man. It's a prequel, of course, to the two established Kingsman films already out, uh, directed by Matthew Vaughan. Um, It's a kind of a fun... It is a prequel, of course, and don't we love prequels? They're sort of like sequels, but they've already happened. Um, It's a kind of a subgenre of that, again, where... um, There's not been a huge number of these films in recent times, but it certainly feels like there's been more of them in the last 10 or so years than perhaps the previous 10 or 15, 20 years. But these kind of historical fiction subset of films where you've got fictional, you know, fictitious characters interacting with and in reality and either creating it or diverting it or causing their own spin-offs or the like from the world that we recognise it as or know it to have happened, you know... Sherlock Holmes' A Game of Shadows was really good in that way, where Moriarty was plotting to tip the world into war and he was planning um, to create a conflict and then sell the bullets and the bandages to both sides of that conflict. Tarantino's done it a fair bit of late as well, Glorious Bastards, obviously had their characters interacting with real people um, and, and creating their own kind of offshoot reality, which was good. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood um, obviously did it as well um, with uh, Cliff Booth and... Rick Dalton, um, you know, played by Brad Pitt and Leo DiCaprio, obviously interacting with um, real people, real situations and the like. And then Matthew Vaughan actually did it himself um, to really, really good effect in the past. He directed X-Men First Class, which had the uh, newly minted X-Men um, embroiled and caught up in and seeking to avert the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, which was a fun twist. It was a really fun framing device for a um, kind of superhero spy sort of film set in the 60s. That was really good. And I think with, with Vaughan, I just want to before I kind of get into the plot and general thoughts about the film. I've always had a lot of time for him. I, I find him to be quite a complimentary sort of you know contemporary of like a Guy Ritchie. You know they're both British, but more than that, they both kind of have this really punchy, classic modern. I know classic modern's a bit of anachronistic, but this really fantastic sort of British style verve um, and way of making films, and it's inescapably. Um, belongs to that kind of culture and you can you can always see that when those guys make films. They don't they don't make the same types of films necessarily, but at the same time their films have a real common sort of thread through them that are, like I said, inescapably British and um, in this case, the film like The King's Band, you have to really lean into that. Richie does it obviously from the ground level with his Snatch and Lockstock and Rock and Roller and, you know, Sherlock Holmes and the like. But um yeah, Matthew Vaughan, like I said, an interesting filmmaker. I, I always make time to see what he's got to offer because, as I'm going to go into later, um, he's not one to shy from taking risks and to (laughs) make decisions or choices that you kind of leave you scratching your head. And most of the time they come off, sometimes they don't. But at the end of the day, what's really great, I spoke about it in the Ghostbusters thing, was guys who are prepared to take that risk and make films that potentially have polarising aspects to them, um, you, you kind of have to swing for the fences and be prepared to strike out. I think Matthew Vaughan sort of walks that line really, really well. Um, With regard to the plot, The King's Man, as I said off the top, is a fun fact-meets-fiction tale of the birth of British espionage in the face of a world inching towards war and, ultimately, one that's been at war ever since. During a prologue set in South Africa at the back end of the Boer War, we are introduced to Ray Fiennes' Oxford, he is there with his wife and young son Conrad to visit Lord Kitchener when the camp is attach, attacked by insurgents and his wife is caught in the crossfire and killed. Widowed and with a young son to raise in an ever-changing, increasingly hostile world, the story picks up 12 years later. With a protective Oxford wary of the dangers a now more mature Conrad will surely soon face. Uh, it's a fun way of framing um, sort of the old world and the new world in The Father and the Son, um, which is done very effectively. Meanwhile, Europe's three superpowers, Britain, Germany and Russia, who are all united by a familial link, are being slowly divided, torn apart, and subtly and slowly uh, by the influence of a nefarious cabal hell-bent on ruining the old world, and established order of things. This group of villainous, nasty folk are led by the shady and secretive Scotsman known as the Shepherd, who's an angry and venomous character, constantly shrouded in shadow. He dispatches his minions to key posts in government around the world to influence, blackmail and destabilise those world powers, which he seeks to destroy by undermining monarchies and economies. His influence reaches to Germany and that of Kaiser Wilhelm, Russia and of course Tsar Nicholas II and across the USA, across the ditch I should say in the USA, where their uh, efforts are to ensure that America does not enter World War I at all. But when it comes to jolly old England, the film makes a few attempts to keep the mole's identity a secret, and that person's task is to accelerate the coming of the war, and central to that is the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Oxford and Conrad just happened to be in Sarajevo on that fateful day of the assassination, and thanks to the quick thinking of Conrad, the plot is foiled, but only momentarily. Obviously, the Plot plays out. The Archduke is assassinated, and with the world inching towards war, King George appeals for Oxford's help. It is determined that Britain's only hope is for Russia to stay engaged in the conflict, for they cannot hope to defeat Germany on their own, and Germany cannot fight a war on two fronts. The only way to achieve this is to confront and hopefully remove Rasputin, who of course is leaning on the Tsar in Russia. Having abstained from participation in the conflict, because he more than anyone knows the personal cost of the conflict, Oxford re- uh, reveals to Conrad the nascent, although as yet unnamed, kingsman and a plan to travel to Russia under the guise of a diplomatic mission to confront Rasputin. Despite this mission, the outcome of which I'll keep a surprise, the world is indeed at war and Conrad is drawn to participate. It is here with his father at home that he finally understands his perspective – that taking a life isn't honourable, and war takes from its combatants more than it gives. A worthy adversary, though Rasputin may be, the group soon realise that he is not the man pulling the strings, and if they are end things once and for all, they must journey to find and face off with the shepherd. So that was a rundown. That was the, the basic kind of plot. Not not everything in there, of course. We don't want to do a beat-by-beat. Beat. It was close to. I didn't realise it was quite that detailed until I got about halfway through it and went, shit. It's a fair bit still to go here. Um, So ultimately, is it good? I like to kind of lead with this off the top before getting into kind of a peripheral conversation and then getting into the pros and the cons. Is it good? I think like a lot of Matthew Vaughan's work, for the most part, it absolutely is. It's fun. It's energetic. Style's great. um, It's engaging. For the most part. You know, this is a guy whose directing credits include the likes of uh, Layer Cake, which was made in 2004 from memory, and that, that was effectively the film that made Daniel Craig James Bond. He did Stardust, which is a, a fun retro throwback, you know, a kind of spiritual companion to things like The Princess Bride, that swashbuckling family adventure. He did Kick Ass, which is sort of the first major subversion of that new era of superhero films, um, funnily enough, based on the works of uh, Mark Millar, who wrote. The Secret Service, which would become Kingsman. Uh, He obviously did X-Men First Class, which I spoke about off the top, which was a really fun film and a return to form for that property that was sort of kind of middling and what are we doing and where are we taking this, where can we take it? Um, And interestingly, that uh, film First Class came on the back of the sort of the failure of X-Men Origins uh, Wolverine, which was just a disaster, and a Magneto standalone film that they couldn't get off the runway though it's absolutely clear when you watch First Class that elements of that Magneto plot survived and or eventually evolved into what we saw in First Class. Um, He was going to stay on and direct more in that series, but he left over creative differences. And curiously, um, kind of even before that, he was actually meant to do X-Men 3 like five years earlier, but things happened and it didn't happen and it was sort of one of those what-ifs that, geez, this guy would be a really interesting choice and he didn't do it and it was a bit of a a what-if loss and then he ends up coming back and doing a good job. So you kind of go, geez, it'd be interesting if we could take him back five years and have him do X-Men 3. What does that look like? Like, it's probably a better film. But it also probably doesn't lead on to what they did next, which was First Class, which was great. Days of Future Past, which was really good. And then they kind of got shitty again with uh, Apocalypse and Dark Phoenix. But... Got a couple of good ones there after a renaissance of sorts. Um, he obviously did The Kingsman and its sequel, The Golden Circle. Um, and just going back to what I kind of mentioned in that Ghostbusters review about a you know, film not daring to take risks, You know that film exists in a very safe, very comfortable middle ground where you, you kind of can't love it, but you can't hate it, which is it's an interesting kind of new trend in cinema. It's almost very hard to land in that middle ground, but they do manage it. Um, Fawn, in, in that way, is, is a little bit marmite you know, because so much of what he does is so good, but when he throws you the odd curveball here and there, you kind of really have to sit back and you go, ooh, Jesus, is that, is that too far? Is that a bit too much? Like, the second Kingsman was like that. There was some great stuff in it, but they really pushed the boat out on, on a lot of different sort of things, and, and most people went, oh, no, that's a bit much, and I don't like that. I like the first one. What you did in the first one was good. You've gone too far on this one. But interestingly again, that's still good because his films are largely, they are still typical studio pictures. They're really slick, they're really well made, got great action, generally got really punchy dialogues and performances. But to his credit, they all carry this signature verve for the silly, this signature style which is his. And that's refreshing, it's that no one else could have made this film like you made it whereas you watch like a lot of marvel films you sort of watch them and think anyone any competent director probably could have made this shot the script made the film whereas you, this guy Vaughn is his own filmmaker tells his own stories in his own way and ultimately the measure of a film the types of films that he makes are uh, do you leave the cinema wanting more f- in more time in that world more time with those characters or you know, just the actual world that those characters inhabit. And if, if you look back on it, you're like, well, I mean, layer cake, yeah, probably. Like Stardust, you're like, yeah, probably. We, you know, we could do something else in that world. Kick-ass, you're like, oh, yeah, they did. X-Men, yep, that created you know, an, uh, an appetite for more in that kind of retro period piece. And obviously the first Kingsman, absolutely. So do you leave the film wanting more of this type of film? Yeah, you, most of the time with a Matthew Vaughan film, you do. So, I mean, full credit to him on that. Um, Just in terms of the context of this release, it is, understandably, naturally, the third film in the Kingsman series, following on from 2014's uh, Kingsman, The Secret Service, and the 2017 sequel, The Golden Circle. Um, It's based on a graphic novel series called The Secret Service, uh, which came out in 2012, written by Mark Millar and illustrated by um, Dave Gibbons. I actually kind of, just as a sidebar, I sort of wonder sometimes if... This film being a Fox film, how far along in production, what was the state of play? Because it obviously got delayed, like so many films with the pandemic, when Disney acquired Fox. Was it sort of just one of those, oh, do we have to, films that Disney inherited from Fox? And then you know the pandemic exacerbated that, all pushing pause on the release schedule and delaying everything. And then now Disney, who obviously had their own slate of produced films, um, pushed back. They've now inherited uh, Fox's slate of films, and it's kind of like, uh, well, where do we plug this in? And we've got a fine spot for this. We don't really want this taking food off one of our film's plates. We own it. We've bought it, whatever the debt it was to make the film. So you know, we'll, we'll try to get some money back. But that's how it kind of gets dumped, you know, at this time of year, you know, in and amongst a bit of nothing. And films can be successful in December, January, absolutely, when people are on holidays. Uh, and the like, uh, that's been proven, you know, even going so far back as Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, Avatar, Star Wars, famously moved their their um, release schedule from summer to winter um, on the back of The Force Awakens. But I just sat down there seeing myself going, you know, you probably, could have, you probably could have put this out in a better time slot for the film, and it probably would have done better, but did you just sort of go, we've got to get it out, it's been pushed back enough, it's not really one of ours so we'll just drop it here, and what happens with it happens with it. Once it's released, Just one less thing for us to worry about. Um, The one thing that's interesting with both um, Vaughn and and Millar's sort of working relationship is the fast sort of turnarounds for filmic properties. You know, Mark Millar's known as as an author for his run on the Ultimate series of, like, X-Men, Fantastic Four, you know, created uh, Kick-Ass, as I mentioned, Wanted, which was adapted into a film, obviously, with... um, James McAvoy, uh, Angelina Jolie. I think Morgan Freeman was in that as well. Um, you know th- those 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 comic properties were very popular and spawned um, well received movies. He wrote the original Old Man Logan story. That was the loose inspiration for uh, Logan, which is probably the best received of the X Men films. And he also wrote uh, the Civil War series that was adopted, like adapted, but very loosely into the twenty sixteen um, Marvel movie. Uh, he also wrote um, Superman Red Sun, which is like this fun, altered history, Elseworlds-type story that asks the question, what would Superman have been, like who would he have been if his ship had crash-landed in Soviet Russia and not Kansas? That was adapted into a DC animated series, animated film, I should say, um, last year, maybe, maybe the year before. Um, and I only mention that because, again, I'm talking about The King's Man, but you know that I love a diversion. Really above like the idea of these Else Worlds, what if Superman was found in Russia? That's to me what DC should have done in response to the growing MCU. They should have done the complete opposite <coughs> of what, what Marvel were doing and doing so brilliantly, because they were behind. So they were they were, you know, what was it? Man of Steels twenty thirteen. By that stage we've already had an Avengers movie and we're just coming into like Iron Man 3 and Captain America Winter Soldiers the next year and Thor is that, that 2013 as well. So by the time they do Man of Steel in 2013, they Batman v Superman in 16, Justice League 17, they're just too far behind. Not that that should matter to the story they're telling, but I think it mattered to them that they feel like, geez, they're getting to these big blow-off Avengers movies that are just dwarfing our movies, and if we've we got we to get these Justice League films happening so the scales are comparable and our films don't feel small and quaint. That created a lot of problems in terms of narrative builds, character builds. So what they should have done, in my mind at least, is just do a heap of one-off stories Go out to Hollywood, put out an open call to any filmmaker, any writer, whoever, adapt or pitch to us a standalone one off story involving our characters. Like, so you've got Red Sun, which is a fun tale. You've got like Gotham by Gaslight, which is set in like Victorian England with Batman. Really stylistically different. It's a completely different film. It's a one off film. You know, do Green Lantern like that. Do. Wonder Woman, obviously, do the Flash, and then, which they're kind of doing now, use the Flash to create the multiverse crossover, like Crisis on Infinite Earths. That should have been their build. Their 10-year build should have been to, like, next year, Crisis on Infinite Earths, where you've got three or four Batmans, a couple of Supermans, and just have it the, the really conscious build throughout these being... We're introducing these one-off, unique stories with unique characters, unique takes, different actors, but we're building to this ridiculous team-up, which will be, yeah, like three Batmans, four Supermans, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Um, You could have also done my favourite Superman, which is It's Superman, which is set in the 30s, which is absolutely perfect. I think I reviewed it on the weekly watch list. Um, and then, obviously, Dave Gibbons, who I mentioned, is an illustrator and artist. Um Sometimes writer, you know, but best known for his work with Alan Moore on Watchmen. Um, he's often, you know, that's often regarded as the greatest comic book or graphic novel of all time. He also worked on the 2000 AD series, uh, including Rogue Trooper and Judge Dredd, uh, as well as you know, Green Lantern, bit of Superman, bit of Batman, bit of Captain America. Um, with regard to the King's Man, first film very good, second film not as good, but but sort of still okay. Where to take the series next? I mentioned prequels. Prequels are tricky because you have to have something new to say, but don't play it safe. I've always likened making prequels or like watching prequels. It's a bit of a thankless task because in a lot of ways you're telling a joke that the audience already knows the punchline to. It can still be funny, but it's got no wow. You know, you got... With this particular film... I think a great example of they've recognised that there's plenty of story to be told before the events of the first one, and they make the really sort of sensible decision to go a hundred years in the past, to go so far back that the two stories can't they can't intersect at all. They're so tangentially linked just in ideas and themes and the like. Um, which is really good, and it gives this, this film, if it's successful enough to get another film, so much time to breathe, to stretch its legs. You're not backing right onto the events of the first one, which is really good, and a really good idea. And more importantly, with an idea like this, to me it kind of taps into the idea that like cinema can take you anywhere, to any time. So if you want to tell a new story, give us something different to look at. Change the location up. Give us a new cast, etc. Give us something that's visually different, you know, thematically different. Um, you know, the context of it all is different, and I think that this film kind of achieves that, if nothing else, in a really fun sort of way. Ganoush is trying to ring me. Sorry, Fabaganoush, you're being declined. Um, chicken salads now. I mentioned fact and fiction, you know, um, historical fiction. It is a brilliantly bonkers meld of fact and fiction. You got Lord Kitchener. You've got you know, um, Vladimir Lenin's in it. Tsar Nicholas, um, King George, Kaiser Willem, You know Rasputin. Got these. You know the the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. Got these really fun kind of like art intersecting real life. And and when 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 it's done well, um, it, it can be in very tongue in cheek, like this is. It's just fun. It, it's just well done, and it's fun stuff. And you kind of pick out these different people, these different things, and how much you know about them. You know, you might get more enjoyment out of it, but they they, they play with it all really, really well. Uh, I mentioned earlier as well, uh, he and Guy Ritchie's sort of tone, um, very punchy, very acerbic, very British. And more than that, a very loving homage to classic Bond. You know, Guy Ritchie's The Man From U.N.C.L.E. was in much the same way, you know, an homage to that 60s Bond. He had... Um, you know in first class um, Matthew Vaughan's you know tribute to that big sections of that film played like a 60s Bond film there's an f- unbelievable scene where Michael Fassbender goes to um, he goes to is it Brazil and he's looking for the you know the Nazis who sort of tortured him Argentina maybe and he's looking for the the Nazis who tortured him and he walks into this bar and they have an exchange and it's like it's like classic bond it's great it's really really good Um. There's that level of like sort of cartoonish villainy as well, you know, which absolutely has its place. The um, I don't know if the, the the evil sort of group had a had a name. I'm not sure if I can remember, but it's like it's really close to what they were spoofing in like Austin Powers, you know, Doctor Evil's henchmen. But this cartoonish villainy, you know, I, I spoke a while ago about cinema having these ebbs and flows from era to era, where. We go through stages where it's really cartoony and really, really silly and really fun, and then somebody comes along and goes, "No, that's shit. Everything needs to be serious." So then we get a, you know, an era of really gritty, grimy, down-to-earth, serious films, and then something like this comes along, and and people go, "No, no, no. Let's make it silly again because that was a bit grim and a bit, silly, a bit dark." Uh. So that's how you go from you know, Batman and Robin to Batman Begins. And You're like, eh. Like people can shit on Batman and Robin all they want, but it's just a representation of an era of Batman from the 60s, which was really popular, and like kids love it because it's silly and it's fun, it's cartoony, it's colourful. Whatever, we don't need to talk about that. Um, I also loved sort of what the bad guy's motivation was, keeping in 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 um, with regard to that, with regard to just the silliness of it all, the really high concept 60s spy farce sort of thing that the i won't give away what the shepherds ultimate end game or plot is but it's just fun like it's just it's just great when he actually kind of reveals it you're like really oh yeah but ultimately because he's so committed to it and because he believes in it so fully it works you know, the film gives him a motivation and he owns the motivation and because he believed in it fully, it's it's great. Um, the bad guys, you know, classic Spectre, that group, um, really sort of over the top, far more over the top than even the most straight-faced, uh, even the most sort of, sorry, um, you know, winking at the camera sort of Bond film from the 60s and 70s was. But just real classic bad guys sitting around a table trying to bring the world undone through just their villainy. Um you got like a. Like the, the Rasputin stuff was really fun. There was sort of like, how will they bring this guy down? How will they do this? How they. How can they get to him and how can they unravel him? And they just did so by appealing to his baser instinct. This was a really weird dude. And there's a fun scene in this that plays out kind of like the scene in um, Skyfall between um, Javier Bartom's Silver and Bond where he's. Is Silver kind of coming on to him or are they. Are they messing around? I've just got a message from Faberganoush, just hanging up these days. Hold on, you can bear with me here as I text Faberganoush. Live in the record. I'll just tell him, hanging up these days. In the middle of a movie review record for The King's Man. You'll be able to hear it when you listen in. We'll see if he gets back to us. Um, let's talk about Rasputin. Yeah, that, that idea where they were kind of... Silver was sort of playing with him and Rasputin had a penchant for all sorts of different things sexually um, and the film kind of makes no bones about that, so to speak, pardon the pun, uh, and they kind of try to come onto him and uh, he's just too weird for them and it gets a bit gets a bit strange, which is great fun, really, really good. Um I really like the setting and the world. You just said he won't listen. You just said I won't. I'm going to write go back because you're a prick. Um, the setting and the world's really good. Uh, it, it takes a bit of time to get going and it kind of does put in a lot of you know, hard work to, to build that world, um, both in terms of getting us to a stage where the kings do exist and establishing the world that we find our characters in when the film starts. So I think it does a great, great job of that. Um, And I like the the idea, too, of it, the plot kind of taking place at this time, you know, during arguably, you know, the world's first modern war, and they can have, like, a, a fun contemporary sort of lens on it while still being, you know not anachronistic, still being true to the era. And this kind of takes that, you know, to a different level because of all the fantastical elements that it kind of injects into the plot. Um, But it's fun because, you know, this was at a time when espionage was really becoming a tactic. You know, uh, travel and covering greater distance was becoming a tactic. You know, obviously planes were now a thing, not to the extent they are now, but it was a modern, the world's first sort of modern war, and as a result of that, agencies like this, in this fictitious world, but agencies like this, suddenly had... um, know, a purpose or a utility, or needed to exist. You know, this idea of fighting the war in the shadows, and and whilst you know the big thousands upon thousands of, of men in these battalions on the front lines, um, intelligence was suddenly you know with um, you know in- encoded messages and the like was suddenly really important, and we'll get onto that a little bit later on. Um, style is obviously always important, and you know I'll, I'll always give a film grace if it has some style. So, the criticism of the Star Wars prequels was that they were very basic. A lot of the design stuff was fantastic, but if you watch them, they're very basic movies. You know, they're shot in masters and establishing shots, and then they move into a coverage generally with a camera A, camera B, reverse shot. You know, usually it's a conversation where the characters are sitting or they're walking in a straight line. Um, It's just easier to shoot, it's quicker to shoot, but it's just not dynamic or energetic. You can't put any energy into the edit, because nothing energetic is happening in where the characters are, how they're delivering their lines, every, you know, all that kind of stuff. And the green screen does make it difficult because actors don't know what they're, you know, interacting with. Um, but this film has, has a lot of fun. I keep using the word fun, but it has a lot of style. So whatever misgivings or shortcomings there might be, like, it's it's made well, it's got a unique flavour and a unique feel... It feels like it belongs in the universe, you know, with its um, uh, two siblings, uh, Kingsman and uh, Golden Circle, which is obviously very important. Um, one of the biggest positives I found in the film um, was the casting. Ray Fiennes is obviously excellent, but there's an alternate reality where he took on these sorts of roles in the mid '90s. You know, he's so effortlessly and quintessentially British, like he played James Bond. In another life, in another timeline, Ray Fiennes played James Bond, not Pierce Brosnan. Um, He did The Avengers, you know, but that was a bit too niche or quaint a project back then, and and in a funny way, it could almost actually exist now. There'd almost be more of an appetite now for that kind of... uh, I suppose they did, like, the Mod Squad. They did all these weird British remakes, these silly old British TV properties in the late 90s, and that was just one of them, and it was just really unremarkable... You know, Sean Connery was the villain and he was playing with the weather, I think, from memory. Um, quirky fact, that was uh, that's a British property, The Avengers, and the film was The Avengers. When The Avengers came out in 2012, they had to call it Avengers Assemble in the UK, which is a bit silly. Um, so ultimately, Luke finds his character is really well done. The journey and the arc that he goes on throughout the course of the film is really satisfying and really well realised. Um, there was a nice moment where he's talking to his son. Um, and he says the line having been in various conflicts in the past every man I killed I killed a piece of myself and it's, I sort of had a wry smile that um, yeah, the guy that played famously Voldemort um, to say that line was a nice little bookend um, and to just show a bit of his range and I don't think there was anything more to it than it just being a good line and serving the plot but um, it did prick my ears up when, when he said that uh, he's just great he's a, he's a great actor and it's great to see him having... Um, not a renaissance, because he didn't go away, but having some sort of higher profile roles with his work in James Bond and uh, now stuff like this. Uh, Gemma Arterton, I'm not really sure how her career didn't really kick on. Like, she she had a go at Bond and um, Clash of the Titans back in the latter part of the first decade of this millennium, um, I suppose you can say, but I always think she's pretty good in, in most of the stuff she's in. You know, she's beautiful, she's charming, she's spunky, Um yeah, it's just one of those strange ones for me that it kind of never really quite happened for her. It could have easily um, have gone completely the other way. But it's just, you know, she still obviously made a, had a good career and made a you know, great living and, and done some good films. But, yeah, she could have been much bigger for, without much changing. Um, that's just sometimes how the business works. Uh, Jaimon Honsu, uh, another great actor. You know, most people would know him from Gladiator, from Blood Diamond, did The Island... Um, he plays a member of the nascent Kingsmen uh, and sort of assistant helper to Ray Fiennes. He's sort of the muscle, if you will, um, and he's really good. Like he's a really sort of powerful actor, and again, um, generally, he's pretty good in everything that he's in. Um, Matthew Good's actually a funny guy. Like he's not—you've probably seen him in a lot of things. Like he, he did Watchmen, he did Match Point. He's been in a bunch of stuff, but he's just like a bit like Jim Arterton. He kind of Made the right choices early in his career when he started getting more prominent roles, but it just didn't quite happen for him. Maybe he sort of can't really be a really strong, strapping, leading man. It's a, he's in a tricky kind of vacuum, I suppose, but he's good in this again. Um, arguably the star of the show is Reese Farnes, um, better known as Spike from Notting Hill, or Kurt Connors from the first of Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man films. He's just having a blast. He plays Rasputin, uh, Rasputin sorry and uh, prove himself to be a really formidable adversary, uh, both with a blade and with his mind. Um, You know, the classic Rasputin tenants are all on display here, disguising science and whatnot as mysticism and playing everyone on a break, and um, he's a a really kind of dangerous presence in the film. And the first skirmish they have with him when they go to uh, interact with him in Russia is just madness. It's a hell of a ride, just absolutely magnificent. Uh, Daniel Brühl, who, who, like I said, no, Nicky Lauder in um, Rush. He obviously played Baron Zemo as well in Civil War and the Captain... Uh, Captain, what's his name? Falcon in the Winter Soldier series, but he's a great actor. Um, he was also in Glorious Bastards. He, no, he, he's great, and he's great here as well as a sort of monocle-wearing, moustache-twirling um, uh, German villain. Um, Tom Hollander, special mention to him. Because in a really fantastic decision or move, he plays each of the leaders of the three main countries. He plays Tsar Nicholas of Russia, Kaiser Willem of Germany, and King George of Britain. He plays the three of them, and it's sort of like a classic throwback to like um, Jack Lemmon in The Great Race when he's playing these lookalikes that all behave differently. And, and he's, he's really... He oh, he was great. Like, I, I really enjoyed it. it. popped up and it was that moment where I went, oh, he's, he's playing all three. That's brilliant. But for some people, they'd be like, "That's why is he playing all the same guy? Why is the same guy playing all three characters? And you go, well, that's sort of the joke. That's the quirky decision-making process that Matthew Vaughan in a fever dream probably came up with. Probably went, you just play them all. And Tom Hollander probably went, that sounds like a lot of fun. So... You now, he was someone that kind of first came to public attention. He played, um, uh, what was his character's name in Pirates of the Caribbean? He was the bad guy, snivelling British sort of Navy man. forgot his character's name. Uh, but he was, he was you know, really easily hateable in those films, and uh, here he, he's, he's really good. I really enjoyed him. Um, good to see Charles Dance. He plays Lord Kitchener. Uh, Aaron Taylor-Johnson, who was kick-ass. Uh, obviously, the connection with... Um, Matthew Vaughan there, he, he has a role as well. Not a massive role, but a, but a role nonetheless, and it was good to see him. And uh, Stanley Tucci, the Tooch, as well, was a surprising, um, a surprising figure to see in this film, and he's good in, again, a very small role, but he's good in just about everything he's in. Another chicken salad was the action set pieces. Unsurprisingly good, given, uh, if you've seen Stardust, the sort of sword fight, you know, sword choreography, choreography in uh, Stardust. He's obviously got a massive love of that old swashbuckling style action. And then more importantly, in terms of realising these set pieces, he's got a really good hold um, on his sort of visual style when it comes to directing action. He really knows how to shoot it, so you get cut it. So you get all the information. Like he only goes in tight for longer shots. He doesn't sacrifice geography or context where we are in the room. Um, He keeps you know, um, elements of the room they're going to interact with in the frame, not literally in the frame, but kind of within, you sort of know exactly where you are, you know exactly where the table is, where the sword they're trying to get to is, whatever the danger might be. He's he's got a really good knack of directing... um, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Not quality action, but directing really, you know, comprehensible action, which is important. You know, we've probably all seen these action movies where... The fight choreography gets lost, and you he, sort of going, I don't know where we are, and who's, where's this guy gone? The other guy that was just in this fight, he's now, where's he? Um, but he, he's got a really good hold holdout, he does a really good job of it. More than that, there was this really sort of graceful brutality to the fights. You know, this kind of organised, clearly constructed, but still really dangerous look and feel. You know, Once again, going back to the prequels, the, the lightsaber stuff in those was well done, but it was very sort of stale. Like it was very, I don't know, very choreographed. There wasn't a sense of we're on the ragged edge here. And with this, it was at a high tempo. There's a, there's a fight, one fight in particular between Rasputin, uh, Oxford, and, um, and the crew, uh, and Honsu, and obviously Conrad. And they're, they're all fighting in this room. And it's, it's at a, it a million miles an hour and it's chaotic, and it's yeah, it's beautiful, and it's so well done, but you never lose track of where we are, where that character is, etc. It's fucking really, really good. And then on that fight, um, it's exciting, it's engaging, but it's so much fun, because if you've seen the first Kingsman, there's that scene between Eggsy and Gazelle where they're fighting at the end um, with Casey and the Sunshine Band's Give It Up playing as the soundtrack. Here, Rasputin fights our heroes to Tchaikovsky. And he's doing these, like, Cossack sort of dancing and all these moves. It's, like, it's brilliant. It's the sort of thing that could be dumb and not work at all, but here it's, like, this brilliant melding of style. It's it's really well done. And then the second major one uh, action scene that was really, really great, there's a knife fight in the dark in No Man's Land. We go to the front lines of the war effort, and um, our characters the good guy if you will conrad and his um, fellow military men have to go into no man's land to recover a particular artifact um, that will significantly aid the war effort they have to go in under the cover of darkness to try to um, find it and reacquire it once they go out there they're met by a german reconnaissance team attempting to do the same thing these two teams of people you know six or seven in each of the groups look at each other and kind of Give each other the eyes like if we fire a gun, then both trenches will know it's gone badly and they'll just open fire and we'll all die. So they put their guns down and they have this, like, yeah, this knife fight in the dark. And again, brilliantly set up, great use of the location, clear objectives and dangers, you know, clear combatants and stakes, really, really well done, great scene. And then actually, on that, the film is like a lovely commentary about war in general. It's like this solemn reminder that while defending one's country is an honour, you know those who send their people to war you know, are the ones that risk and lose the least of anyone involved in the conflict. That's sort of the message going through it all in Oxford's perspective, having gone through it himself, is that idea that you know, King George, or whoever it is, you, know, you sign the order to send these, these young men to war, you know, you're not actually risking anything. They are, their families are etc so it's quite a sobering kind of message at the heart of this ultimately silly fantastical film but it's it's quite well done Um, and then on the plans that they're trying to recover again nice maybe little nod star wars and the death star plans they've got to go out to get this it's a film basically that the bad guys are trying to blackmail the um the americans with so they've got to go out to recover it once they recover it we can the Americans can enter the war without fear or favour of their president being slandered, et cetera, et cetera. And it's only interesting because I say, once upon a time, he was slated to maybe direct a Star Wars film, whether it be the Force Awakens or the film that immediately followed. That was Rogue One, which of course had that plot point at its very core. Um, but that was that was obviously many many years ago. Um, but it was a nice little sort of nod that in amongst all the conflict, they're after this little tin of film that will change the course of history as they know it. Um, in terms of the chicken shits, um, the film probably just has a... As, as some of these films can tend to, just some second-act jitters, but it's a classic Matthew Vaughan film in that way. It's, it's a roller coaster. The good is really good, the good is great, but sometimes you need to wade through some strange choices and um, you know weird decisions to kind of get back get back on the high, if you will. Um, but as i pains to say over the last couple of weeks, there's something refreshing about that, about that level of risk and that level of throwing caution to the wind. And well, we'll see if this works. I don't know if this will work, but we won't know unless we try it. So there's elements like that. Once the film kind of gets over that immediate high of introducing everything and then having to settle in to have a plot, it could potentially be construed as just a little bit messy. It's a little bit overstuffed. It doesn't lose its – the beats still all end up working, but it's just sort of – which is a testament to the the filmmaking because there's so many elements at play. But you you could make an argument that there's just maybe too many elements going at the one time and too many wheels turning, and you don't ever feel disorientated as such, but um, it can get a bit like, okay, all right, well, we've got this. All right. Well, not really so interested in what's happening over on that storyline, etc. But um, that, that's sort of a minor criticism. And then the reveal of the bad guy at the end is is fun. It is classic, um, sort of serialized, you know, nonsense that Matthew Vaughan probably grew up watching. Um, it's very cheesy. It's very silly. Uh, it's not that it's bad or anything. It's just a bit telegraphed. You know, I, I didn't have an issue with that because it's like horror films and the bad guy. It's not going to be someone you haven't met. So when the reveal comes as to who the bad guy is, the film hasn't really made or gone to any great lengths to disguise who the bad guy is. So if you like to be surprised, you're probably not going to get that from this film. You're probably going to figure out pretty quickly who the guy is. Um, Again, nothing wrong with that, because the film's not here as a big whodunit. Um, The the, the film plays out in still a satisfying way. So, I mean, overall... um, I'm always happy to cut a film that's having so much fun being the way it is, some slack, especially if, for the most part, like The King's Man, it's stuff that needs to be fun, and and the stuff that they're trying to make fun is. You know, it does run out of steam, sort of a touch the longer that it goes on, but the silly villains make for great foils for the heroes. The action's really well done. The world is really well realised. And as I said off the top... Would I like to see more stories told in this world? Probably, yeah. Would I like to see more stories told in this timeline with these characters than I would um, those at the end of the Golden Circle? Yeah, probably. If we're going to get more Kingsman movies, make a sequel to this more so than a sequel to um, the Golden Circle. So, again, that's a testament to the world and whether you enjoy it and have fun with it and something I think worth considering considering you know, when you walk out of the movie, hey, did I like that? I think most people probably would. There is a very, very silly credit sequence, which <laughs> again, classic Matthew Vaughan. I don't know if it was a great idea. <laughs> I'm not sure <laughs> that might be going a bit too far. But you take the good with the bad. Um, but yeah, look, ultimately, I'd probably give it a maybe a B minus um, on a grading scale. Uh, it's obviously in wide release at cinemas at the moment. It's probably not too far away from your Foxtel sort of on-demand rental services and the like, because we were a little bit behind actually getting a theatrical release for it. Um, But if you have seen the other two and enjoyed them, absolutely check it out. Uh, If you haven't, I reckon there's an audience for a film that's fun to watch, good action, good performances, tongue-in-cheek, knows exactly what it is, um you know that's always a good thing so if you do see it as i always say let me know get in touch with me let me know what you thought of it um in the meantime will and i'll be back shortly uh, in the next week or two i think to do a bit more of a recap on what we've watched and what we liked and did not like on the weekly watch list um so for me sean peter budge wrapping up this chat about the king's man thank you very much for your time we'll talk to you next time